Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us for worship this morning. We are entering the fall season, and for many of us, that means the start of something new, as David referred to, that school, for most of us, has started in some way or another. Uh, If you don't have kids in school or you're not in school, you're at least hassled by the bus traffic around town, which means we all deal with school. Maybe you're starting a new job or a new ministry effort. We have lots of stuff starting up in the fall. Fall just tends to be the time when things get going. We've kind of been lazy over the summer, perhaps, and now we're going to kick it into gear. So in keeping with this theme of new beginnings, this morning we are starting a new sermon series. The title of the series is Return to Me, and it is going to cover the last three books of the Old Testament. So we're going to get into that in a meeting, but before we get there, I want to pause and pray together. It's so fitting that we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as we look back on the past two years of this church's existence and seeing the way that the Lord has worked, and we want to trust Him now moving into the future with all of our needs, with all of our desires, with all the things that the Lord can supply. So before we get into it, would you pray with me this morning? Father, it is indeed with humble hearts that we come knowing that all we have needed, your hand has provided. And what a blessing to be able to sing truth, not just speak it in some sort of objective way, but we can put our emotions and our soul behind it as we sing, great is thy faithfulness. And Lord, just as you have proved yourself in the past to us, I pray that you would once again show grace and mercy to us as we now move into the future. There are many things that are unknown to us, Lord. Indeed, everything is really unknown until we get to it. And so we trust in the God who sees all, who knows all, and who loves us. What an amazing combination. And Father, we commit ourselves to you now as we look to your word and we seek to find encouragement and comfort and strength and hope and all of the things that your word provides for us, Lord, do it in our hearts because that's what we need. So we say and we sing, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, but that's also a request that you continue to show this great faithfulness to our church as we follow you in obedience, as we are enabled by your spirit Father, come, work in us a work that we could never do ourselves. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and would all of us, everyone here, place ourselves under the authority of your word as we live our life. So we thank you, Lord, we love you, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, this morning brings us to a really exciting place in our preaching schedule as we start this series in the Minor Prophets. Now maybe you don't know what the Minor Prophets are or where they are located, but they are in your Bible and I'm going to show you where they are and why they are for our good. And so what I want to do before we get into the first chapter today is I want to give us something called canonical context. So you guys know what the canon of Scripture means? Canon is the word that refers to the totality of the books that we hold in our English Bible. 66 books, we call this the canon of Scripture. So canonical context, referring to the canon, just means that I want to show you where this fits 
into the Bible that you hold right now in your hands. So let's start at the beginning. I'm going to give you some Bible context, and then we'll do a little immediate context that'll help us more as we get into this first chapter. So the Bible, generally speaking, can be divided into five thematic sections in the Old Testament. Okay, we're talking Old Testament this morning. So first we have something called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the law of God. Penta means five. We have the Pentagon, the five-sided, right? And then the other word, tukos, just means vessel or a container that carried something. So these were understood as the five vessels that carried or communicated the law of God. Therefore, we have the Pentateuch. Next, we have historical books. This ranges from Joshua all the way down to Esther, and this covers the nation of Israel as they come into the promised land. They deal with the people that live there. They're settling in geographically. It covers the time of the judges and the time of the kings, all the way up through Solomon uh, and Hezekiah and the ministry of uh, those two guys that I was going to tell you about, Elisha and Elijah. So all the prophetic ministries, the history of Israel, those are the historical books. Then Job, through the Song of Solomon, is what's called poetry. Okay, this is the poetry section and the wisdom section. And these, as if you've been around the last couple years, we've been going through the Psalms every summer, and we see that this section of Scripture was given to the people of God, not only for their good, but to give expression to their worship, to give expression to their feelings and to what they were going through and what they were experiencing. So we have this section of wisdom and poetry. Now, the rest of the Old Testament can be divided into two major sections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. So major prophets would be Isaiah through Daniel, minor prophets would be Hosea through Malachi. And I'm not exactly sure why the major-minor terminology Major prophets deal with much more global things, it seems. It's not just God dealing with his people, although he is, but he's also talking about bringing my sons and daughters from afar and getting the nations to come and worship. There's a global aspect to the major prophets. They are also much longer. When we get to the minor prophets, they are much shorter. They were written on one single scroll. It didn't take multiple pieces of parchment for these. And they dealt, generally speaking, with more immediate things to the nation of Israel and Judah. Now, once we get into the minor prophets, we can make an even further distinction as we see that some of these books were written before the nation of Israel is taken into captivity. You remember the story of Daniel and the fiery furnace and the den of lions, all that stuff? That was during the Babylonian captivity. Some of these books were written prior to that, some were written after. Now, the three books that we are going to be studying for the next few months, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are what's known as post-exilic books. Post meaning after, exilic referring to the exile. So the three books we're going to look at have to do with the experience of the people returning to and establishing their homes again in Jerusalem when they are allowed to return to the land that the Lord their God had given them. Now, to give some connection to other parts of the Old Testament, these books are very closely connected to Ezra and Nehemiah, which would be in the historical category if you're using those literary genres. So Ezra and Nehemiah cover the first couple of years as these people come back from Babylon, and they come back with the intention of building the temple, 
and establishing the worship of Yahweh again in Jerusalem. But as we're going to see, as we go through these books, they didn't complete it. They got distracted. They gave in to fear and a number of other things, and the project was put on hold. So as we're going through these last three books in the Old Testament, it would be very good on your own time if you read Ezra and Nehemiah in tandem because you will get a more complete picture, and we will, of course, reference back to those several times as we work through. Now, before we get there, and I've said that like three times already, I bet you're wondering, is he ever going to get there? And we will, I promise, just in a minute. I want to give you three reasons why I thought preaching through these books would be a good idea right now. First reason, I'm pretty certain that if you're like me, the minor prophets are probably among the least familiar books of the Bible to you. And you might say, good grief, why don't you just preach Romans or something, or Hebrews or something that we're familiar with? Because this is for your good. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, what? All the Iwana kids could say this together, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. I want you to profit from the word. And part of my job as your pastor is to open the scriptures, not just the familiar parts, not just the easy parts, and tell you why your hope and your confidence should be in the word of God. And it can be. Because these books, as we're going to see, are so relevant. So we need to study these books because they are in the Bible and all of the Bible is for our good and I want you to be familiar with your scriptures. Second reason is that these three books contain for us examples and instruction and correction that are so needed today. The things that these three books deal with are common to the rest of Scripture, and they are common to your experience. What happened, just a brief overview, is the people of God had neglected the worship of God. They had become consumed with satisfying themselves. They had rejected the things that God had established in His covenant, and were now experiencing the consequences of that. And God, God in His grace, calls them back. And he calls them to repentance and offers them grace. It's the same story. But there's some really unique examples that I think are really going to be good for us to study. That's the second reason. Third and lastly, when we study the history of God's people, we study our own history. Did you know that if you are in Christ this morning, if you are a believer, you have commonality with these post-exilic Jews. Think of the history of redemption as a chain with links in the chain and they link one another together. We are at the end of that chain, so to speak, in the history of redemption. We're as far as history has gone. And as we look back, each one of those links marks some kind of circumstance or situation or demonstration of God's power and we look back and we see that we are connected all the way down the chain. The faith that we profess, the faith that we believe is built on the teachings of other people, the scriptures, yes, but it's built on the teachings of the Puritans and the Reformers and the church fathers. Their faith is built on the teaching of the apostles. The apostles' faith is built on the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus descended from this line of post-exilic Jews. 
We're connected. When we study this history, it is your history if you are a Christian. This is for our good. And we need to know this. And I am so excited to open these books with you because it has just been so good for my own heart and I trust it's going to be good for yours. So, with all of that in mind, finally, let's open our Bibles to the book of Haggai. Now, if you say, I don't know where that is, you got two options. You can use your index, that's why it's there in the front of your Bible, or turn to Matthew. If you can find Matthew, Haggai is three books to the left. So it'd be Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. See, that's, that's kind of where we're going. So turn to Haggai chapter 1. We will read the entire chapter, and this is our content for this morning. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, <clears throat> while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain and on the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of, their, of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now I already gave us some canonical context showing where this book fits in the canon of Scripture. And now as we get to chapter 1 of Haggai, I want to give you some more immediate context that's going to give some kind of support to why we read what we read here in chapter 1. And this might be a little bit 
teachy. I'll try to make it as interesting as possible, but we need to know what sets up this situation. We can't just plunk ourselves in here and expect to understand what's going on. So a couple of dates, and this will all make sense, so bear with me. This is really good. In the year 586 B.C., the people of God were taken into captivity to Babylon. As I said, you, you know that story, and you know some of the workings out of that story. They're taken into captivity because they had disobeyed the covenant of God. In fact, they had pretty much defiled the covenant in every possible way. Just think of some of the, we won't talk about all these examples, but I'm thinking of things like Jezebel, Ahab, I mean, just some of the nasty stuff that you read in First and Second Kings, these people were doing in violation of the covenant that God had established with them. So, because God is a God of covenant-keeping promise, and in the covenant he has said, I will bless you when you obey, and I will punish you when you disobey, to be faithful to his word, God allows Babylon to take his people into captivity. So this happens in the year 586, the Babylonian army overthrows Israel and Judah. The temple that Solomon built was destroyed. The king was knocked off his throne. And the people of God were forcibly removed from the promised land which they had taken inheritance of. Now fast forward 50 years. They've been in captivity for 50 years. It's 538 BC. Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, conquers Babylon. Babylon ran its course. It was, at the time, the most formidable world power. But all power comes to an end, earthly power. So Cyrus the Great overthrows Babylon, and he has no need for all of these exiles that they had taken into captivity. Israel wasn't the only country taken into captivity. There were dozens of countries that Babylon, in their conquest of the world, took into captivity so that they could assist with the economy and the structure and the uh, building and all the stuff in Babylon. So there was dozens of nations living together. Cyrus comes in and he looks around and he says, I don't need this. So he makes an edict that says all the exiles are allowed to return to their homeland. Under Persian rule, of course. He doesn't just cut them loose. They're going to pay taxes. They're going to be subject to some of the things going on. But he allows the people to return home. So interesting little side note here, this was not specific to the Jewish people. It was in some ways incidental, meaning that we can look at this release of these people as an act of God's common grace, right? God stirs in the heart of Cyrus and he releases all these people and one of the effects of that is that God's people are then freed to go back to the homeland which they came from. It's really stunning. So, the people go back, about 47,000 Jewish people return to Jerusalem with the intention of rebuilding the temple. This was kind of their motivation. This is how they set out to be when they returned to Jerusalem. And as we read in Ezra chapter 1, it got off to a great start. The foundations were quickly laid. There was unity, and it looked like, okay, this, this might be the, the coming kingdom that the old people talked about all the time. I'm sure some of the people, I mean, it had been 70, well, 60, 58 to 60 years since the exile. Some of them were still alive. They still remember the former glory. And the hopes are high. But then, there's Samaria. 
Samaria is just to the north of Jerusalem geographically, and they start to watch what's going on. And they start to see, and they start to remember. And they remember that when Israel, (coughs) excuse me, when Israel worshiped the Lord, when they were obedient to God, when they were faithful to the covenant, they could not be stopped. And as a bordering country, they go, "Uh uh-oh, this might not turn out very well. So what do they do? They get their feather quill, and they start writing. And they write a letter to Artaxerxes, who's at this time the king of Persia. And they say, uh, <clears throat> hello, don't know if you noticed this, but the people that you sent back are kind of starting to be unified, and they're building this temple, and I don't know if you know what happens, but this could be a really bad thing for you. Artaxerxes gets this letter, and he's like, hmm, never thought about it that way. That is a bad idea. So he writes a letter back, and he says, tell them to knock it off. We don't want that temple built. I know it's going to happen. And so we read this. This is Ezra chapter 4, verse 23. Then when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, <coughs> they went in haste to the Jews in Jerusalem and by force and power made them stop. So the people are watching what's going on. And they're saying, this isn't good. If this temple gets built, there's going to be trouble politically, maybe with the military, whatever. And this is where we pick up in Haggai chapter (coughs) 1. Sorry about the cough. The temple is unfinished. It's been started, but the progress has been halted due to fear and disobedience and complacency. They gave in to the pressure. Samaria says, you better not. And they were like, okay. It's horrible. And this is a situation we find ourselves in Haggai chapter 1. The people of God return to Jerusalem. They've built houses. They've established commerce. They grow crops. They raise livestock. But most importantly, they have neglected the worship of God, which is represented by the presence of the temple. So, in chapter 1 of Haggai, through his prophet, God addresses the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua. These are the ones who would lead and instruct the people. They are representatives of the people, and therefore God directs his call for covenant faithfulness to these two guys through the prophet Haggai. And this is really the big issue in this chapter, that the people of God have forsaken the worship of God. This is the whole thing they came back to do. They haven't been faithful to God. They returned with good intentions. They started out strong, but as so often is the case, it waned, it faded, and they no longer upheld the covenant that they once agreed to. And so God brings this complaint, as it seems, to the people through the prophet Haggai. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, oh, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, what were they waiting for? They'd come back. This is the whole reason they came back. They were pursuing their own satisfaction, their own comfort, and yet they had neglected the house of God. God had worked in the heart of Cyrus, like we just said, to release all these people, 
and yet they'd squandered the opportunity. At least that's what it looks like for now. And so God calls them to repentance. He is gracious to reveal to them their sin through the prophet Haggai, and he tells them why they have been having such a tough go of it here in Jerusalem. He says in verse 5, Consider your ways. Think about what you are doing, people. There was a futility to what the people were doing. We read about this in verse 6. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the people who earned money, it fell out right the bottom of the bag. Talk about a depressing situation. And you know that the people were wondering, what is going on? Why were things so different before? The difference was that before they were worshiping the Lord. They were upholding their end of the covenant. God is telling them why have things have been so bad for them these past years. And here it is. You want to sum it up? You want to sum up the problem? Here's my summation. The people could not satisfy themselves because they would not be satisfied in God. They could not be satisfied. All of their labor, all of their work, all of their striving was meaningless because they had rejected the worship of God out of fear for what might happen. And doesn't that sound like what we do today? That so many people are willing to obey the voice of the Lord because it's just too inconvenient. I don't have time. I'm focusing on this over here. What a shame. Because as we're going to see, the covenant faithfulness of God is unlike any other. Now we have to ask a question. Was God's primary concern about the physical temple? That seems to be the issue when he calls them out in the first half of the chapter. He says, you're living in paneled houses. In other words, houses that were structured and architecturally sound. They weren't just thrown together, mud huts kind of a thing. They were actual brick and mortar houses. Is this God's main complaint? Is this some sort of divine temper tantrum? Well, they have nice things. Why can't I? Absolutely not. The physical temple is not God's main concern. His main concern is with the worship of his people. And the worship of his people is a concern with their hearts. Their hearts had been turned away from the Lord. That is the problem. Haggai, because of God revealing his message to him, understands this. He understands that rebuilding the temple is primarily a heart issue. And he understands that Actions and behaviors follow desire. Isn't that true with all of us? We do what we want to do. Every one of you is here this morning because you want to be here in some way or another. If you didn't want to, you wouldn't be here. If the people had wanted to build this temple, they would have. But they were distracted. They were redirected. Their hearts had been drawn away from God and his faithfulness to them, and had been allured away by, well, let's just get ourselves established first, and then when we have time, we'll look after this other stuff. That was the wrong priority. This is God's big issue. It is not about a brick-and-mortar building. That was representative 
of what was going on in the hearts of the people of Israel. You've heard me say this before plenty of times, and I'm going to say it plenty of more times. The physical, literal illustrations and pictures that we see in the Bible are oftentimes meant to help us understand a spiritual reality. So is the temple the problem? No. It's the heart of man that is desperately wicked and in need of reviving. So God, to honor his covenant, gives them a call to faithfulness. Now as we move further into chapter 1, we see one of the things that make this book unique, even among the other minor prophetic books, and that is that the people hear and obey the voice of God. So many times when we read the history of the nation of Israel, we see that God extends to them this offer of grace and forgiveness. Come back to me. Renew the vows. Come back to the covenant. And they stiffen their neck and they set their jaw and they say, mm, we'd rather be over here. And then God brings judgment, often through other nations. We see that over and over and over again in the history of Israel. But this is different. The people hear and obey the voice of the Lord. And not only do they obey him, they fear him. That's noteworthy. The word fear that's used in verse 12 doesn't have an exact English equivalent, but the word is meant to communicate two main things. First of all, it is submission to the authority of God and also wonder or awe because of the works and the might of God. And this is the perfect word that should describe all of our reaction to the proclamation of the word of God. So notice what's going on here. Haggai proclaims the word of the Lord. The people hear it and their reaction is not some kind of a flinching terror kind of fear, but a reverent, holy awe, A-W-E, awe of who God is. That is the right response of the people to the word of God. Now let's mention one thing about the prophetic ministry. The prophets in the Old Testament had a unique role in that they spoke the very words of God. When a prophet of God who was ordained of God and called by the Lord opened his mouth and said, thus says the Lord, those words were meant to be obeyed not because of the man, but because of who he represented and who he spoke for. This was very unique. This is why there was not thousands and thousands of prophets. True prophets. We know there were many false prophets. But when a man of God opened his mouth, those words were the very words of God, and we have them recorded. Now in verse 13 of Haggai 1, we read this. Then Haggai the messenger, that's a really important word, the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with his own ideas. Nah, that's not what mine says. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. He does not bring his own interpretation. He does not say, okay, this is what God said, but why don't I just soften it a little bit, or why don't I add some... Ooh, I'll put a joke in. That'll be better. The people will really get a kick out of that. That's not what happens. 
Haggai opens his mouth and he says, people of Israel, thus says the Lord, you're screwing it up, you need to come back to me. It's Jacob's paraphrase of what the Lord said right there. God's prophets, his messengers, have no inherent truth or authority in and of themselves. They speak on behalf of Almighty God, and that is what gives them authority. That is why we ought to listen to them. Not because they were great, not because they were articulate. Think of some of the people God chose to use. They were goof-ups, just like I am and just like you are. But because they spoke the word of the Lord, they were meant to be honored, obeyed, respected, All of these things, not because of them, but because of the Lord. Angels are another example of messengers, right? They communicate in the Bible the message of God. Therefore, they are to be obeyed. Not because they're angels, but because they carry the words of God. That's their role. That's why God made them. Now today, in our time, we don't have prophets like this, like they did in the Old Testament. We do not have men who say, The Lord spoke to me audibly, and now I'm going to speak on his authority. We ought not to have that today. If anybody comes up to you and says, the Lord told me to tell you, you have every right to chapter and verse that person. You want to know why? 2 Peter 1 says that everything we need for life and godliness is contained right here. In the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, necessary word of God. Now this does not mean that the Spirit can't prompt you to share something with somebody. This does not mean that you can't have an intuition or a feeling that you just need to share a scripture or give an encouragement to somebody. But God has spoken through his son, Hebrews chapter 1. There is no longer this audible, direct connection. And we need to be really careful about who we listen to and who influences us and who is teaching us because the word of the Lord is all we need. And it is enough for us. So we don't have this kind of prophetic ministry in the sense of people speaking directly for God. But what do we have nowadays? How could this thing be applied to us? Well, we have the word of God and we have preachers. Now listen, I am not equating pastoral ministry with prophetic ministry as we see it in the Old Testament. But there are similarities in the sense that the job of a faithful preacher is to open the word of God and to proclaim to the people in front of him, this is what the word says and you ought to obey it, it ought to correct our thinking, it ought to guide us, all of those same things. So there's definitely similarities. So as we read that Haggai is the messenger who brings the Lord's message for all of us that handle the word, no matter what your context, you might not stand up here, you might not stand somewhere, but if you handle the word of God, you have an obligation to honor the intent of that word. You are God's messenger when you share the scriptures with somebody. And we ought to be very careful in the way that we handle the word of God. Now, two more things I want to point out as we come to the end of Haggai chapter 1. Notice that God gave the command through his prophet, come back to me, 
He's calling on them to restore this covenant faithfulness. And the people obeyed. But it was not just the goodness of their heart that made them obey. At least that's not what I think it was. And so we could ask the question, what, what was it this time that clicked it? What made the people obey this time when previous times maybe they hadn't? Look at verse 14. I think this is the most important verse in this chapter. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Don't miss this. The people obeyed and they feared God. Why? Who motivated and enabled their obedience? It wasn't their common sense. It wasn't their guilt for past disobedience. (coughs) It was not their good intentions that motivated their obedience. Do you see what it was? It was the Spirit of God. The Lord stirred up their spirits. That's significant, isn't it? Because that tells us that on their own, these people were not able to obey the command of God. If God had not moved in this way, if he had not given his spirit and enabled these people to obey his commands, there would be no obedience Paul told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 that he works and toils and struggles with all God's might that is at work within him. And the same thing is happening in Haggai 1.14. The Lord, by his spirit, stirred up the people and enabled their obedience to him. Don't miss that. This is not just that the people finally got their head on straight. I mean, they did in a sense, but it was God's doing. It was God's doing. And you and I, my brothers and sisters, are in the exact same position. We have absolutely zero hope of obeying the commands of God unless our Heavenly Father enables us by His Spirit to obey His commands. This is the same thing that you and I deal with in our life. You and I, along with every other Christian who has ever lived, are in need of strength we do not possess and power we cannot supply. But you know what the good news is? The very thing that you and I need is the very thing that God gives. (laughs) Aren't you glad? That God does not only command and require our obedience, but he gives us as a gift the very means that we can obey him. By his spirit, what a God and what a plan. The last thing I want you to see has to do with how you and I are enabled to be obedient. Because we ought to be looking at this, and if we have the eyes to see it, we should be seeing, okay, the people heard the word of the Lord, Through the prophet, they were led by these other two guys, and they obeyed. And it looks like it was the Spirit of God that enabled, that stirred up their hearts and gave them the ability to obey. So what do we do? That's great for them. 
But you just said, Pastor, that we're connected with them. We're the same as them in some ways. So how do you and I, right now, get the ability to obey the command of God? Great question. Notice who all is involved in Haggai chapter 1. Besides the people, as a, as a corporate entity, who else is involved here? What do we see? Well, we have Haggai, the prophet. We have Joshua, who is the high priest. And we have a government official. Let's just call him a king for argument's sake. That's how he's acting as a representative here named Zerubbabel. So in order for all of this to take place, in order for the people's problem to be solved, the problem of inability, there had to be present, you ready for this? A prophet, priest, and king. Anybody tracking with me? What do we see Jesus doing in his ministry? He is the great prophet who communicates the word of God to the people of God. He is our high priest who, according to the book of Hebrews, made a once-for-all sacrifice for sin that was sufficient for all of his people. And he is our great king who lived our life, died our death, was raised, defeated our enemies, and now calls us into his kingdom. And more than that, he gives us his spirit which was promised in the Gospel of John, so that you and I now, if you belong to Jesus, can obey his commands. Is it any wonder that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and beaten down with the burden of the law. Get in the yoke with me and I'll carry it with you. Jesus does that by his Spirit. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And that is what we see foreshadowed in Haggai chapter 1. How about that? Maybe we should read the Old Testament, huh? This is for our good, brothers and sisters. And I am ah, so excited to get into these books with you. It is going to be so encouraging. So... As we read, as we go through, as you start to make connections, don't miss these seemingly small things. That everything that's going on in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are significant in and of themselves, yet they also give us a forward look so that when Jesus comes on the scene, we can say, hey, wait a minute, that's familiar. I saw this back here, and you can make the connection. The only two responses to this kind of knowledge should be that of praise or prayer. We'll call it petition. I'm a Baptist. I have to alliterate everything. I know some of you love that. Once you get the knowledge that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he is the fulfillment of these things, if you are in Christ, you ought to praise him for his work and the gift of his spirit that enables your obedience. And if you are not in Christ, if you see the requirement of the law and you say, how could I ever obey that? How could I ever live up to that standard? Then petition him and ask him for it. He'll give it to you. He gives his grace without measure. It is free for anyone who will fall on their knees in front of the cross and lay your burden down. And that is the best news that you can hear this morning. So whether you are in Christ or whether you have yet to be united to him through faith, ask him. Ask him to extend grace to you and he will forgive your sin. He will lift 
your burden and give you his spirit so that you can obey his commands. Pray with me. Father in heaven, what a plan. I am so grateful to you, Lord, that in your wisdom, you have set things up in such a way that your requirement is clear. God, we know what you expect from us. And yet, under the weight of the law, we are crushed rightly. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, that you give us the ability to obey your commands, to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And God, I pray that every heart here this morning would hear and understand that there is hope in Christ, that we do not have to perform a righteousness on our own, but that because of what we are about to celebrate at the table, it is freely given. So Spirit, come Impress upon each of us the importance of knowing Jesus and what he has done for us. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.